As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Instead of taking up that gym membership that you wouldn't use even if the gyms were open, how's about subscribing to The Athletic for just £4 a month as a New Year's resolution? You'll get unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com slash totally. Totally Football Show. Today, a big win for Man City at the Etihad and one at Anfield too, as Liverpool's home form and Man United's away record combine for a goalless draw. We draw our conclusions and then talk Brighton's win at Ellen Road. Could Leeds be tired? Hail West Brom's derby triumph and salute Spurs win over the Blades with that quite astonishing effort from Ndombele, who didn't get substituted once. All that, plus we hear about Inter, Juventus and Chini Reckon Telltales of Jimmy Hill. It's all in the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener, and thank you so much for joining us here on Totally for all your Monday football roundup needs. It's the 18th of January, and standing by to do football talking for you. We've got Daniel Story. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. Michael Cox is along as well. Hello, Michael. Hello, James. Joining us from the civilised world, it's Dion Fanning. Hi, James. Lovely to have you back, Dion. Great to be back. Mm. We're midway through the season, you know, midway. What conclusion can you draw for us, Dion, midway through the season? I think we're reaching a point where... uh, Perhaps Liverpool and Manchester United supporters are thinking that they both want their their least worst option at this stage is Manchester City to win the league. Ah, well, they they might just get their wish at that point based on what we saw on Sunday the 17th of January. We'll touch on Man City's win and the draw at Anfield shortly. Daniel and Michael, do you have a conclusion to mark this midway point of the season? Yeah, my, my conclusion is that now we've hit the midway point, I no longer have a problem with Daniel saying that teams are on course to do things. Because sometimes he says, you know, Burnley are on course to score two goals all season, three games in, and, and I find it really irritating. So I won't take exception to that anymore, Daniel. That's good to know. That's good to know. Uh, I mean, it probably doesn't rank even the top 10 of irritating things I do, but it's... Um, do you have something yeah. that you'd now like to allow Michael to do, like not give Ole Gunnar Solskjaer credit for being a good manager? <laughs> no, I, I feel, yeah, I feel that would, I feel that would be sort of grabbing a huge rock and throwing it around my very small greenhouse. All right, um, okay. No, I, I, I do think that um, kind of linking this slightly to the Liverpool Man United game, I do think that, that there's a sense this season that in big games we're probably going to have to get used to the fact that teams are very happy to take a point with three or four games to come in the next 14, 15 days um, and that we might well see more of this. You know, teams Mm. just happy to sacrifice. I think the league might well be won against the rest rather than against the big six. All right, let's get a quick check on the scores then after what was mostly round 19 of the season. West Brom 
on Saturday, won the Black Country Derby 3-2. West Ham were also winners, 1-0 over Burnley. That's their third straight 1-0 win, the Hammers. Chelsea beat Fulham, well, Leicester beat Saints, and Brighton won at Leeds, who haven't scored a goal or even taken a point since they and everyone had a go at Karen Carney. Sunday, Spurs held on to a lead, winning 3-1 at Sheffield United with a worldie from Ndombele. There were no leads whatsoever in the uh, goalless draw at Anfield and Man City beat Palace 4-0 in fairly spectacular fashion. It means that the top four are now just three points apart. Man United top, two points ahead of Man City and Leicester City, Manchester City with a game in hand, with Liverpool fourth now, just a point further back and just a point ahead of Spurs. At the other end, Brighton move up, Burnley drop into the danger seat just above the bottom three, where West Brom are now five points from safety. David Weston writes in to say, just a plea not to spend 20 minutes of the pod talking about a game that merits no time whatsoever. It was a match entirely without talking points. Whichever does he mean. And surely it had some. We'll come on to, I think, the fixture in question very, very shortly. But let's begin with hot streaks. Man City, 4-0, their victory over Palace. That's their fifth straight win. Uh, It's their seventh clean sheet in their last nine. And pretty much all the goals were pretty wonderful. Yeah, they were, and, and and they're also sharing out those goals. Ilkay Gundogan's got four in his last six, which seems strange. He's playing slightly further up the pitch. Um, John Stones obviously scored twice, which is uh, highly unusual, but probably a sign that his confidence is up. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne hobbled off with looked look like a bit of a sore ankle, but other than that, it was so, so routine. Palace didn't have a shot on target, and it, it does feel all of a sudden like Manchester City are playing opponents who come to the game almost as they did in in 17, 18 and 18, 19, where they kind of, you know, they're happy to take a 2-0 and move on to a game they think they can take something out of, which is uh, worrying, I'd say, for the rest of the Premier League, because I think they're probably the only team that opponents play and feel like that. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's interesting the way City have come with this run of form and I think a lot of the the kind of narratives around this around City this season were sort of were formed prematurely at the start. I think informed too by the sense that Pep couldn't keep going. You know that there there is there is a sort of a natural shelf life to Pep Guardiola as a manager, um, and you know the early defeats to to Leicester and then you know later on to to Spurs. Um, they gave this sense that you know City weren't going to be. A realistic challenger but clearly um like the run of form they're on as Daniel says like the way the goals are being spread out the solidity they also have in the team the form of stones as well in defense and you know now scoring goals as well I think they are their favorites for the title now and when you look around when you you look at at the teams around them I think they're, they're it's right that they're favorites well they're the the team on the hot street but I guess one of the one of the lessons of the mistakes we made in judging them early is that it might be a mistake to judge anybody uh, based on any run of uh, of results at the moment. Michael, they are in tremendous form. What could stop them? What could derail them? KDB's ankle? Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's interesting what Daniel says about the goals being shared around, um, which is completely true in terms of who's scoring them. I mean, no one scored more than five, uh, which is which is what Sterling has managed. But in terms of assists, I mean, De Bruyne's managed 10 assists so far. No one else has managed more than three. Again, is Sterling. So yeah, I think they are very dependent on him um, and taking him out of the equation. I think you've got um, a much less competent side. So yeah, that's the main thing I would say. But uh, otherwise, I think it's been it's been a great month for them. Obviously, five straight wins in the Premier League, also a progression in the League Cup, uh, getting through to the final and, and in the FA Cup as well. Um, so yes, they look so much stronger than midway through December where they really hadn't hadn't started playing really this season. I think the other thing maybe we, we slightly or I certainly slightly overlooked is the fact that we had a we had a very short preseason and they lost Leroy Sané who admittedly didn't play a huge amount last season. They also lost David Silva and Sergio Aguero has not really played much this season. So they're three players who last season if all have been fit and and happy at the club would have started a you know every big game I think um, and maybe that took a bit more time than we thought to get over and Guardiola clearly thought that the way to do that was to make them more resilient than they have I think 
it's a little bit generous to say he's masterminded that because I don't think anyone, even he, saw John Stones coming and stepping up quite as impressively as he has. As kind of he was seen as maybe an alternative to Diaz rather than a partner. Laporte would have been the natural one to start every game, but it's working. In the meantime, with City looking well placed, let's move on to the earlier game at Anfield. No goals, but do we at least get to draw some conclusions from Liverpool nil, Man United nil? I think we can draw some conclusions. I think there has to be, you know, the uh, the old the old line that the uh, definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. And um, maybe now we know to stop talking up Liverpool Manchester United games because uh, it's it's a long time since you can really look back on on uh, an epic, thrilling match, and. I think there was there was a, a a little bit of caution from both managers. I think Solskjaer might be thinking that he he was cautious in how Manchester United approached it. I I thought the the selection the team selection from Klopp was a bit cautious in terms of playing Henderson at the back with Fabinho, and I think he could have maybe risked uh, one one Reese Williams or one of the young players at the back, and because what you lo- like when you look at how. United approached the game in the first half. Uh, they were, it was comfortable for Liverpool at the back. Fabinho was the outstanding player of the game, I thought. And what you lose in not having Henderson in midfield, I think, was something that actually Liverpool, it was, it was something they were lacking, especially after the first 25 half minutes or half an hour. Mm. Let's have a quick dip in the post bag. Speaking of uh, definition of insanity, repeating the same thing again and again, uh, Alessio Di Maria reminding us that uh, Liverpool Man United will be taking place next weekend as well when they face each other in the FA Cup. John Sands asked, did any of the pods still remember that Shakiri was at Liverpool? Yeah, he's apparently been, Klopp says he's looked really good in training. He's had a fairly disastrous run of injuries in that none of them have been hugely serious, but they've been enough to pepper his time at Liverpool and therefore pepper him getting into a very settled team. Um, the one thing about the the defensive headaches is that it does create room in midfield for a player like Shakiri. And I thought he was pretty good first half. I thought he protected the ball well, worked quite well with uh, Thiago and, and Trent Alexander-Arnold down the right-hand side. It was just that final ball was, was poor. I thought Roberto... <laughs> lost a bit of faith with Roberto Firmino. I know he's not a, 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 a natural finisher and a natural elite level goal scorer, but he seems to have lost the creativity as well at the moment. And um, he, he has to start because Divock Origi is seemingly the next cab off the rank. And I think there's a huge drop off to go there. But yeah, that was, I feel like if, Firmino, if Firmino's not quite on it, then the other two next to him suffer. Did you also remember that Van der Beek was at Man United, Daniel? Yeah, that's the mad one for me because he's played 251 minutes in the Premier League this season. Now, it can take players to acclimatise, but it's a lot easier to acclimatise when you're getting some football. And I thought Bruno was Manchester United's worst player. Um, he completed seven passes in the first half. He didn't really do much more in the second half. He had that free kick, but you know he's always produced some set pieces. But in open play, I don't think he really did anything. Um, and more broadly, I think I do think Solskjaer should or will regret not going more more attacking, if not in team selection, than at least in style. Um, he seems to have had got this thing now against, maybe caused by the Spurs defeat, the 6-1 defeat to Spurs, but they haven't scored, I think, in the last four games against big six teams now. And maybe he thinks they can win the league by doing kind of what I hinted at in the intro, which is beating everyone else. Well, they are currently top of the pile. Sorry, Dion. No, I was just going to say that I think uh, what Daniel says about, about Firmino, uh, it also underlines how big a loss Jota is. Because uh, not only was he, you know, scoring so many goals, he did actually seem to focus Firmino's, Firmino's mind a, a lot more at the start of the season. And I think when his form was dropping off, Liverpool could bring Jota in. But also Firmino was, uh, um, he, he, the way he's dropped off now, as Daniel said, there's, there's really not, there's the, the, the lack of cohesion among the front three at Liverpool um, was kind of startling because so much is built on that, and when that isn't when that isn't happening the way it is at the moment, um, it's it's a big problem for them. So Duncan Alexander pointing out that Liverpool are actually being outscored this year by Andy Carroll. So what's behind that? Um, why has the feeling? Why has the the that kind of instinctive relationship between the front three dropped off so badly? Why don't Liverpool score anymore? 
I think maybe there's an element of fatigue. I mean, that front three has played pretty consistently over the last two or three years without much break, without too much rotation. Uh, I must say, I don't necessarily agree with the, the criticism of, of either manager, actually, in terms of their level of ambition. I mean, I thought when Klopp decided, after Klopp decided that he was going to go with two midfielders in his defence, I think most managers after that would have chosen a very cagey central midfield three, maybe Milner, maybe Oxlade-Chamberlain. I thought the decision to play Shakiri in a right-sided, of a, you know, right of a three midfield role was very attacking. And as Daniel says, I thought he was he was probably the best player in the first 20 minutes. Um, I mean, from from Solskjaer's perspective, I thought United dominated the last 20 minutes. I think they had two really good chances with the short pullback for, for Fernandes um, and also the Pogba chance. I think if you'd said to Solskjaer, going into the last 20 minutes, they're going to be your chances and Liverpool won't have any real chances, he would have taken that, and rightly so. And I think really the problem was was poor decision-making from both sides. I thought Firmino, as Daniel mentions, is not playing well. When he didn't slip in Robertson after about 15 minutes or something, that was a terrible decision. And later in the game, are we allowed to say anything bad about Marcus Rashford? I thought he completely wasted that chance when uh, Fabinho made up the ground on him. That was a great... That was what Manchester United are all about. I mean, they were playing for that type of opportunity. So I thought this was... I didn't think it was as bad as a lot of people are saying, to be honest. I thought it was an all right game. But it was let down by poor poor decision-making from the key attacking players. Mm. All right. You didn't feel that Solskjaer, given the way those final opportunities came in the last 10 minutes or so, that maybe United should have just gone for it a bit earlier? Not really. Um, no, I mean, Manchester United play at their best when they're, when they're playing counter-attacking football. I don't, really, I don't really understand what people want from them in those, those kind of situations. I mean, yeah, I thought United actually looked at their best in... in in patches in the opening half when they did have space to break into. There was a Fred ball in behind that just about escaped Rashford, I think. I mean, it's situations like that I think they have to make more of. But yeah, I thought they had the best chances in the last 20 minutes. And if you played those chances again, I don't, I don't know the XG, but if you played those chances again, the Fernandez one from the fullback, from the pullback and the uh, the Pogba chance, I think they'd probably score, weren't they? And, and then we're all saying... What a great job Solskjaer got his, his tactics right. I, I can't really see that much criticism for either manager after this game. Were they it? that huge, those chances? The one to Fernandez basically sort of bounced off him. He didn't get much time, I think, to pre- prepare. Is that fair? Yeah, and it, well, he, he, needed to lift, he needed to lift that chance. and It felt like he poked at it rather than kind of lifting it. If he'd have lifted it above knee height, he would have scored, I think. Right. Um, the, the Pogba, Pogba one, one was... Yeah, the I mean, Pogba it, chance it, was good. That, that's yeah, a good he, chance. What, yeah, yeah. Right, and, and and a fine save from Allison. A defender closing in, I think, maybe forced his hand a bit in terms of where he where he placed it. But you know, that's what he's there to do. Fair enough. All right. Well, so um, some some good points from the game. Uh, to some nice flashes from Thiago once again. Luke Shaw with an excellent performance against Salah. I didn't didn't expect that one to go quite as heavily in in the the United left backs. Yeah. Favor. We- we talked. Dion rightly talked earlier about the the Jota effect on Firmino, and I think exactly the same with Alex Tellers and Luke Shaw, because since he signed, it it does look to have um, you know subconsciously or otherwise given Shaw a bit of a nudge in the right direction. Which um, you know this is a guy who who should be thinking about playing for a starting place at, at the Euros this summer. Um, England have got a huge collection of right backs, but not so many left backs, and um, yeah, he 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 looks on it. Uh, I, I think he dealt with. Salah pretty easily I, I'd probably without wanting to be too negative I'd probably say that was more Salah's not really getting involved in the game enough than um, than Shaw but it was more when he attacked you know the the pullback for Fernandes was great the good thing is that the the worry with Shaw sometimes is his, his stamina going late on in games but he was still overlapping after 80-85 minutes which is great I give some credit to Lindelof as well, who never really seems to get any praise. And I think a lot of people were surprised he started instead of uh, Eric Bailly. I mean, he's a funny player, Lindelof. I, I think it's pretty difficult to say anything he really excels at. And I think people struggle to almost place him what type of centre-back he is. But sometimes he goes through games like that. He never puts a, a foot wrong. I think he reads the game really well. Uh, his positional sense is very good. He's, he's good on the ball without being a real kind of, you know, diagonal ball merchant. Um, but he never really seems to get any praise when he plays well, so... Here's some praise. Why is that, do you think? Wrong kind of haircut, wrong kind of name? I'm often it's something as simple as that. Maybe. I mean, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's not a... He wasn't he's a solid, glamour name he? when he came. He's, yeah. yeah, he's a solid player. He's quite understated, I think. He's not um, he's not a kind of tub-thumping leader, is he? Which 
I mean, compared to someone like Ruben Diaz, who I think has been very good, but I think people like the fact he's a proper defender and celebrates when he clears the ball and stuff. Lindelof is a bit more low-key, but yeah, I, I thought that was a, a good decision by Solskjaer to play him. I think in these big games, he's actually generally pretty solid. Excellent. Dion, you were on second captains recently talking about why United won't win the league. Has this result at all affected your thinking on the title race? No, because Manchester City are going to win the league. Oh, so yeah, I, I don't I don't need to um, say I was wrong because uh, Manchester City, happily Manchester City's run of form has meant that uh, Manchester United won't win the league. I still think, uh, I think, you know, some of, some of the issues with United... Not so much the issues, but I think you saw today probably why their position at the top of the table is a bit of a false position because you know I, I know I know what Michael's saying about the you know if if those chances had gone in, United could have would have won the game. But at the same time, if Liverpool's front three was functioning properly in the first half, um, like United sat so deep, they were they, they were there for the taking if Liverpool were functioning properly. And with Bruno Fernandes not playing well, with Pogba kind of uh, sort of really doing nothing wide on the right, you saw why United probably are still a, a way away from a genuine title challenge. Well, we're approaching David Weston's 20-minute limit, so <laughs> let's just wrap that bit up. Just to mention that, as, uh, as previously cited, they will be going up against each other next weekend in the FA Cup, fourth round. Before that, United are at Fulham who lost 1-0 to Chelsea this weekend. And Liverpool take on Burnley, who themselves had a 1-0 defeat at the hands of West Ham, with Mikel Antonio making his return uh, to league action and immediately getting on the score sheet. Uh, The other game from Sunday, just to finish off this chunk of chat, saw Spurs go to Bramall Lane and get their first victory there since December 1975. What was number one back then, Michael? Um, the, uh, big big Christmas number one, 1975 was number one for about three months. Bohemian Rhapsody by the Queen, not the Queen, but you know by Queen. Then, <laughs> uh, oh, and Ndombele, that goal. I mean, some people in the TV studio were saying, did he mean it? He was trying to hook it back, keep it in play. Daniel, you're not having any of that, are you? Well, no. The fact, I mean, partly the fact that he. I mean, he aimed exactly what he did and he was the only player in the penalty area. And secondly, because he looked at where Ramsdale was about half a second before he did it. Um, yeah, it was it was Ndobele's game. He was magnificent. Um, he's brought exactly what Tottenham needed in that team, which is fun. But he's also brought it mutually inclusive with, with productivity, which enables him to stay in a Jose Mourinho team. Um, because... The, you know the way he he protects the ball and kind of chops it one way and moves away from a marker is is exactly what Harry Kane and Kilmin Son need. Um, and I thought I thought Spurs were really good against a team who you know they couldn't counter attack against because bless them Sheffield United are, are not really doing anything right at the moment and um, they were at fault for both the first half goals they conceded. You know poor marking from a set piece early on, Oliver Norwood miscontrolling it for the second goal and miscontrolling it for the third goal. And I think, yeah, I mean, it, it was to me. It was it's not particularly insightful, but it was it was as simple as Spurs had far better players playing in far better form and were due far more than a three-one win. Brilliant. Well, they've got one, and it keeps them in the mix as regards certainly the top four, and who knows, perhaps aspirations above that. After this, let's get on to Saturday's winners and losers. RB Leipzig gift shop. Yeah, uh, I want to return a player. Uh, he's not working. He was supposed to help me achieve my goals, but I don't think he even knows what a goal is. Ah, yeah. Well, uh, all I can say is that he was just fine working when he was to London dispatched. Oh. Lampard and Chelsea can't seem to get their money back, but you can with Paddy Power's Acker Cracker. If one leg of your four-plus-fold Acker lets you down, get a free bet on all football matches and all markets. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10. Min odds 1-5 to five on each leg. Online exclusive. Exclude shop bets and enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. 18plusbegambleaware.org. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. 
Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Boom. Saturday's action. And first off, West Brom, is it on? After their 3-2 derby win at Wolves, this is their first victory under Sam Allardyce, their first away win of the season. And it saw the continued emergence of a new kind of classic Big Sam player in Samir Ajayi, who's now got three goals in six games under the equally Big Sam. Uh, What did anybody make of West Brom as they roar their way out the bottom three? Not quite yet. They're five points off safety, but you know. I thought it was uh, an absolutely classic Allardyce game in the sense that there were five goals. None of them came from open play. I think if Allardyce could just narrow a game down to set pieces... He would. And I think two came from corners, two from penalties and one from a long throw. Um, in all seriousness, they, they, they do look better. I think that uh, they are well organised. I think uh, Pereira was heavily involved. Robinson was heavily involved. I actually really like the signing of Snodgrass. I know a few people were saying, oh, that's really boring. A kind of journeyman Premier League player moving to West Brom. But I think Snodgrass has got... Real great technical quality. I think he needs to be around players who can make runs off him. But he's, he strikes me as the kind of player Allardyce has done a good job with throughout his career. One, in the sense he's he's getting on a bit. It's probably his last Premier League move. And second, he's a really good set-piece taker, really good crosser. So, yeah, I quite like that signing. And, uh, yeah, obviously this was a, a huge first victory, especially in this fixture. Mm. They've got West Ham coming up away on Tuesday. What about Wolves? meantime whose fall off has been truly dramatic obviously part of that is the injury to their main goal threat Raul Jimenez uh, but uh, this is a club uh, producer Charlie pointing out who were in the last eight of the Europa League just a few months back now on a run of one win in nine no clean sheets in 12 in the league they lost six of their last nine they're lying 14th and almost all the teams below them have games in hand on them Crikey. Zafod5 says, is the party over for Nuno and Wolves? Averaging 0.5 points a game since Raul's injury. Relegation fight ahoy. Is it the Raul injury? Uh, given that it's also at the other end where they're having all sorts of problems. I mean, I, I know that, you know, both ends of the team influence the other end, as it were. But one of their really big issues is the way that they've seemed to have totally lost their shape at the back. Is it this switching between four and three? Maybe. I, I, I think there's there's very quickly, there's three things. Firstly, yes, Jimenez, and it's not just the fact that they miss his goals, it's the, the fact he held up the ball and brought other players into play, and that isn't happening now, which I think means they're kind of having to overload players forward to make that work, and therefore they're getting caught out a little bit. Or, the, or as Michael says, they were set-pieces, goals, ahoy here. Um, they also don't have a deep squad, um, and they haven't since getting into the Premier League. They've had a remarkably good run or had a remarkably good run of consistent selections um, until Jimenez's serious injury. Uh, and and finally, I think it just shows how for every non-Big Six team, last season counts for very little. You know, we've seen that with Sheffield United to an extent, we're seeing it with Wolves, that there's just no overrun. Or Every year almost feels like year zero in the Premier League because it, as soon as you stand still, there are clubs like Everton and Southampton and Leicester and West Ham even who who buy well get, or get a new manager in and suddenly they jolt above you. I think it also shows, again, you talked about the Europa League last season, but that was August, uh, as you said, and immediately they're into this season. So whatever you do last season, as Daniel said, if you're a smaller club, especially now, it's not just the, the grind of you know Premier League season after Premier League season. It's the peculiarities of a Premier League season, two Premier League seasons in a, in a pandemic when you're, you're trying to fit everything in. And I think uh, everything is, is, is exaggerated because of that. Wolves, for all their disappointing run of results, still 10 points clear of the relegation battle and better times, no doubt, ahead. But further down... It is looking interesting down there. West Brom, as I mentioned, now five points from safety. 
But elsewhere in the sort of bottom three picture, Sheffield United lost, Fulham lost, Burnley lost, and Brighton won. What a win for Brighton. Away at Ellen Road, 1-0 over Leeds. Uh, now, we'll, we'll touch on Graham Potter's side in a second, but just to talk about the home team here briefly. Last weekend, they had that embarrassing FA Cup defeat at League Two side Crawley. This was kind of supposed to be the reaction. What, what, what did we see? I think one, one of the things with Leeds at the moment is uh, it was actually, it almost seemed like their objective was to, to lose by as few goals as possible. It, it doesn't seem to be working for, for them at the moment. Like It wasn't a game where any of the things that you associate with a Bielsa side actually appeared to be happening. Uh, especially after, as you say, after the cup game from, from last weekend, it just seemed like there was something, there was, they're not scoring goals. Again, another game where they haven't scored. And I think it was, it was, uh, it just seemed like maybe you don't want to, you don't want to point yet to that sort of Bielsa cliche, but are they, are they already getting exhausted at this stage of the season? Be really careful when you, when you say that, Dion, are we, Three weeks ago, uh, lead social media encouraged a bit of a pile-on on Karen Carney when she suggested that their promotion last year owed a little bit to the season having an unscheduled three-month break in it. Since then, they've not done a very good job of proving her wrong. They've lost three games out of three without scoring a goal. Uh, Calvin Phillips' absence through suspension, no doubt influential here, but to be fair, they did look really leggy, didn't they? They only made 13 tackles, which is a, a season low in the Premier League. Calvin Phillips' absence probably explains some of that, as does the fact that they generally dominate the ball, although they've pretty much done that all season, especially at home. Um, it just seems that so much is on Bamford's shoulders, which is remarkable given at the start of the season, I don't think anyone could say with any degree of certainty that he was going to succeed in the Premier League this season. And yet within three or four months, everything is suddenly resting on him because Pablo Hernandez was fantastic for a while, but he's ageing and not, not really there. No one else is really stepping up other than other than Rafinha, who they landed an absolute bargain with him, but Rodrigo's not really hit the ground running and so much is on Bamford. There was one chance that he kind of had an air kick and he kind of thought, well, that might be the best chance you get in this game. And if you don't take it, then you're suddenly in a bit of trouble. What's the story with Rafinha and Harrison playing on each other's wings? I don't have an answer for this. It's a genuine question uh, for any Leeds fans. I thought they'd been, you know, very, both very bright in the last couple of months and uh, didn't really get the idea of switching them. They didn't seem very productive in this game. Mm. If it is tiredness, they do have the rare luxury of 10 days without a match, Leeds. Another unscheduled break to the season. <laughs> uh, because uh, Wednesday's game against Southampton has been called off to allow Saints to play their postponed FA Cup third round game against Shrewsbury right so Bielsa's team don't play until the 26th of January when they'll have uh, Newcastle United away which you know could be a good fixture to come back to Brighton though that's their first win in 10 and we kind of should have started by saying well done Brighton who've now won more away games this season than Liverpool have hurrah I mean I don't want to call this a turning point because I think everyone agrees they've been playing pretty well Anyway, just not scoring goals. This time they scored a goal, Neil Mopé there. His fourth in five matches against Leeds, interestingly. Um, but yeah, very positive. And it moves them away a little bit from the bottom three. Yeah, and this is what they do as well. You know, in the last year, Brighton have only lost to Everton, Spurs, Man City and Leicester away from home. Um, they've been dismal at home. And in, in, in the same time, I think since Potter has been appointed, I think they've only won more home, more home game than Norwich and they haven't been in the Premier League for a few months. So, um, yeah, they've been dismal at home, but decent away. And that will, I think, will probably keep them up um, because it, it, it's, it's, a manager would consider it easier to, to sort out the home form, I think, than the away form. If they were losing every week away from home, you might be a little bit more worried. But that kind of intimates that there's a, a decent still a decent morale in the squad and a kind of unity to fight for, for the cause because they're by no means safe yet and they've played more games than people below them. But yeah, wins like... I just don't see Fulham and West Brom even and Sheffield United going to Ellen Road and winning. And I, I thought Brighton could do that and they did. So mm. yeah, fine. Do you know where their next game is, Daniel? It's at home, worryingly. Is it? Against yeah. Fulham. Against Fulham. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that worries me because they're a slightly powder puff team when they they play at home, Brighton. They seem to let a um, let things 
happen to them. They don't really enforce themselves on the game. And I know that really frustrates supporters. Um, they also need a goal scorer. I mean, I know more pace scored at the weekend, but um, between him and Welbeck and Connolly, there's kind of one decent striker in there, I think, or one decent Premier League goal scorer in there between them. It's just not enough. They need a goal scorer. Well, maybe they'll get one by the time Fulham turn up at the Amex in about 10 days' time. Now, still to come on this Totally Football show, we'll be hearing from James Horncastle about the Derby d'Italia, Juve's uh, trip to San Siro, take on Inter Sunday night. We'll also be celebrating the end of uh, the maximum wage in football and uh, we'll be discussing the other things that happened this weekend, including what Fulham did against Chelsea, and that's next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Fulham nil, Chelsea won Saturday tea time. Chelsea with only their second win in seven matches. And rumours still are rumbling, apparently, over their uh, manager Frank Lampard's position. Uh, probably his prospects weren't helped very much by the uh, opening periods of this game, which saw Fulham probably the better side. And then, even when they went down to 10 men, the cottagers still hanging on for a draw until uh, Mason Mount finally got the goal. Uh, Timo Werner continued his very, very dry spell. He hasn't scored in the league since the 7th of November. Next up, Chelsea... Travel to the King Power to take on Leicester. Ooh, that should be interesting, Michael. Yeah, I think it should be. I think Leicester will start that game as strong favourites because Chelsea again won very good. I mean, Chelsea got the win, but I really think my opinion of Scott Parker improved further after this game and my opinion of Frank Lampard is is still uh, pretty low because I just don't think he's really figured out a, a default attacking plan for this Chelsea side. Um I, I worry about his, his selections and it's almost like he's picking certain players based upon, I don't know, whether they're his favourites or whether he's judging on how they, they behave in the dressing room or whatever. But there's certain things like, for example, Callum Hudson-Odoi, who I must admit I was a little bit sceptical about his, his ability before this season, but I think has consistently done really well as a super sub. Can't really seem to get a start. And that's even without... Havertz being in form and he's out of the side. Werner's out of the side. Hudson-Odoi just can't get a game and yet he often seems like their best player and just little things like that I find slightly confusing. So if you were to get the nod, if, say, Chelsea were to call, Michael, what would you do? How would you, how would you, uh, how would you set them up? I, honestly, I don't know. I think it's a really tough one. I think they've got probably at least one too many attacking players, uh, uh, one too many attacking player at the club. I think they've probably got at least one too many new signing at the club and he's having to embed a lot of players at the same time. I think there's a almost equal pluses and minuses to playing the 4-3-3 and the 4-2-3-1 with this group of players he's got. I think Vern is an issue because in some games you do want him as a central striker. Against a deep defence, I don't think you can use him as a central striker. So there's so many issues. and I must be honest, I don't know the answer. It's Lampard's job to, to know the answer and, and he hasn't really convinced me. Uh, and the one thing I am most confused about is the one thing he's definitely nailed is Mason Mount's a really good player and he knew that before he got the job. He knew that at Derby. He knew that from the first game when they lost 4-0 at Old Trafford and Mount was probably the best player on the pitch. But what I don't understand is Mount seems to be this like, he seems to divide opinion. A lot of fans seem to think that Mason Mount is some kind of you know, almost hoax. Do you know what I mean? That he's not a very good player. And I just can't understand why anyone would think that because he seems very good at almost everything. He seems super professional. He seems very like a nice lad. Where does the where does the backlash against Mason Mount come from? Can anyone explain to me? Yeah, well, I, a part, I mean, this is a fairly recent thing, I think, but uh, and it might not be Chelsea fans necessarily, but I think the, the compa- unfair comparison because they're different players with Jack Grealish probably doesn't help. Um, that's certainly why. That's probably the biggest stick that anyone is beating or choosing to beat Gareth Southgate with at the moment is that kind of favour for Mount, and maybe that gets reflected in him being seen as almost like a 
almost like a boring player in contrast with Grealish. And I think that's highly unfair for the reasons that Michael lists. Um, maybe he's seen as a bit of a teacher's pet and sometimes the, those kind of teacher's pet players, again, unfairly, can can kind of be tarnished by that. Whereas actually it just means that a supposedly very good manager that Chelsea really want uh, or did really want rates him, which to me is a is a positive, not a negative. What do you think, Dion? Chelsea at Leicester? Um, I think Leicester are favourites. I thought they were Chelsea were poor against Fulham. I thought it was um, when you saw what what Lampard said before the game as well, especially because he's talked about the two weeks since the City game and the fact that they haven't they had a cup game in between, but they were able to kind of concentrate and and work on the training ground. And he said this has given us a a chance to work on the bigger elements of our game. And then that performance until Robinson got sent off. Uh, it, there, there didn't seem, as Michael said, there didn't seem to be, uh, you couldn't discern what bigger elements of the game, especially in attacking, in attacking f- f- form, uh, they, they had been working on. So I think I, think I would make Leicester favourites. Leicester coming off a 2-0 victory this weekend over Saints. Brendan Rodgers unhappy at the way his team started, but uh, a lot more content with the final score, except for the fact that once again, Jamie Vardy had to come off early, uh, looking, uh, well, hobbling a little bit. Michael? I thought it was just a really enjoyable open game, actually, very end-to-end. I think Leicester were maybe slightly flattered by the final scoreline because Southampton had a couple of good chances. And it was just one of those games where I thought that the players you want to be having good games had good games, if that makes sense. I thought Armstrong for Southampton was was very prominent in, in the second half. Uh, Tielemans got two absolutely lovely assists. I think Tielemans is probably still quite underrated. I mean, I, I think he's as good a central midfielder as you will find in the Premier League, to be honest. I think he's a brilliant passer. And also Mark Albrighton as well, who's one of those kind of players he's just been around for quite a long time and probably doesn't get that much credit but as I mean he's played a really vital role in a title winning side and yet five years on when he he always seemed like the kind of player who'd be phased out as Leicester brought in speedier more dynamic players is still going and still a lovely crosser of the ball I mean Leicester and Southampton I'd say probably just are there many people who dislike those teams do you know what I mean it just felt like a nice pleasant open game of football to watch I really enjoyed it yeah, Adam Hurry described it on Twitter as the most wholesome Premier League fixture, which I think is probably true. There's, it kind of feels like unless you are either living in the environs or support a rival team, then they're kind of second club material for, maybe with Newcastle, I suppose, but second club material for everyone. I mean, Saints are a very positive bunch, and then Leicester gave us the, the greatest fairy tale ever in football, so that's nice. You mentioned Albrighton was a big part of that title-winning side. Could he be part of another, do you think, this season? Is that is that too much for stretch? Yeah, I think it is too much, unfortunately. Partly because Vardy is going to, unless they buy a striker pretty sharpish, then mm. Vardy's going to have to play pretty much every minute of every game and score most of the goals. It's good to see James Madison back in form, though. He's kind of struggled with injury first few months of the season, but he seems to be at it. All right. They're, they're, they're third, two points off the top, but okay. Uh, the one game that we haven't touched too much on, uh, meantime, was the Claret Derby Saturday afternoon between West Ham and Burnley, which Michael you saw and enjoyed? Um, <laughs> one out of two. <laughs> um, no, I thought it was an all right game. I, I thought there were two interesting things. One was the goal scored by Antonio because it was very unusual to see Burnley concede a goal like that. You know, a cross is usually the kind of thing they gobble up. But I thought it was interesting. There was some good movement from Bowen to basically drag the entire defence out of shape. They ended up with Peters, the left back at right back. They also ended up with the centre backs the wrong way around which maybe contributed to me making a very yeah atypical error for him I thought the other interesting thing was I mean we all know that Suchek has made a really good impact as a kind of the new Maroon Fellaini uh, you know as an aerial target in the opposition box for a defensive midfielder but I thought here it was notable that his aerial prowess was really useful alongside uh, Declan Rice against a team playing Route 1 football. It meant that they had, you know, Suchek and Rice are probably, I would guess, the best aerial duo for any central midfield uh, pairing in the Premier League. And and along with Ogbonna and Dawson, who had a pretty good game at the back, they just had this square of players who were completely up for aerial challenges. And that meant that any long balls to, to Wood and Barnes weren't very effective. And Burnley just never got going, really. I, I should mentioned that I'm obliged to say that Burnley are now on course uh, to score 
20 league goals this season, um, which is, I mean, is, is record equally bad. Derby, Derby County scored 20 in their wretched 07-08 season. And that's the lowest ever in English football top flight history. Um, I mean, clearly at plenty of seasons that teams played 42 games, not 38. But even so, you barely find a team in the 20s. Um, so I know Sean Dice does some of this by design and he prefers to be resolute, but you could you could field six James Tarkovskis at the moment. But if you're, if you're scoring nine goals in 17 games, you're not going to get many points. And they are very fortunate that there has been a, a Sheffield United this season, a club that are almost completely out of it because otherwise they'd be in serious trouble and they clearly you know they've got new owners now and those owners might have potentially might have slightly higher ambitions than this all right well they're certainly still in quite a sticky predicament only one place above the bottom three but four points clear of uh, fulham in 18th uh, i for one hope they stay around a long time because they have great names and like Wooden Barnes, their striking partnership, which is fantastic, but also the uh, ever hilarious Ben Mee, because every time anybody mentions me in commentary, then it's just it's just funny. Uh, Michael, you said a big mistake by me, and I'm thinking, well, what did you do? Or, <laughs> it, it's my, just... my attempts to uh, my attempts to get Ben Mee shape me any way you want me as a champ right. at Turf Moor. Did that not some Well, still falling on deaf ears. Well, there's no crowd at the moment, but, uh, you know, if you can have a word with the artificial, (laughs) with the augmented crowd. Anyway, sorry, we'll move on, listener. Uh, Monday night, it's Arsenal-Newcastle. You're right, they did play last weekend, and yes, it wasn't particularly good. And then actually Arsenal had a a really disappointing 0-0 draw Thursday against Palace, which I think a lot of people put down to Kieran Tierney's absence, because apparently if you take Tierney out of Arsenal... The whole thing kind of shuts down. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think it, him and him and Saka are the, are the big two players. And yeah, Arsenal don't really. Well, Kalasinac is, is left, doesn't he? So they don't have a backup left back. So they don't have anyone else who can offer what he does, and he has offered a lot this year. Well, fingers crossed that he's back. Unless you're a Newcastle fan, of course. Newcastle are also not entirely clear of danger. Currently lying fifteenth, seven points above the bottom three. Other games taking place midweek. As we mentioned, Leicester take on Chelsea on Tuesday and West Ham are up against West Brom. Then Wednesday, it's Fulham against Man United and hopefully Man City against Aston Villa. And next up, let's talk about some really, really big bit of history on this day. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Listener, it's January the 18th and it's a historic day for football because on this day in 1961, while young folks were vibing to the sound of Perfidia by the Ventures, the maximum wage was abolished in English football. Boom. And when we say maximum wage, we mean £20 a week, £17 in the summer. Before this day, no footballer could be paid more than that. Incredible. £20 per week, by the way, back in 1961 money, is about 440 of your current day pounds, which compares quite interestingly with the figures trousered by the current highest paid players. Number one right now in wage earning in the Premier League is David De Gea, who gets £375,000 a week, so that's gone up a bit. But the man who got players a fairer deal back then, by threatening an actual strike three days later, was PFA leader Jimmy Hill, who had probably the most unique career, is that fair, that anyone has ever had in English football ever? Yeah, I'd say he was certainly the most influential person, certainly in the second half of the 20th century. I mean, some of the things we've come to take for granted that can be related back to his influence is quite incredible. I mean, things as fundamental as three points for a win, uh, the maximum wages we're talking about, electronic scoreboards, uh, match day programmes, big screens inside a ground. Um, I mean... Studio Pundits. Studio Pundits apparently was his invention when he was head of one of the ITV region's sports department. Yeah, some remarkable things. And and of course, he just fulfilled so many different roles as a a player and a manager and a director and a presenter and a pundit. Yeah, just ongoing list. This kind of almost... I don't know, almost almost cartoon character, wasn't he? He just yeah. kind of did everything. So, yeah, footballer, club chairman, 
manager, union leader, head of TV sport, match of the day presenter, match of the day pundit, and once, famously, even a linesman. Also, and perhaps most importantly, he was also, Jimmy Hill, um, very much go-to playground slang in my day uh, when you wanted to express incredulity. What I think you might term chinny reckon. Yeah, chinny yeah, reckon, reckon. you'd stroke your chin. In or my just, day, you would go, Jimmy Hill. If yeah. somebody said, this guy did all that and once he was a linesman, you'd go, yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy Hill. But the thing is, it's absolutely true. I mean, you probably know this story, listener. We can move on. But if you don't, or if you just wanted to be reminded of the details, famously, in 1972, Arsenal were playing Liverpool. Linesman Dennis Druitt pulled a muscle... And they didn't have a fourth official or something in those days. So they made an appeal over the PA for a qualified referee to see if anyone happened to be a qualified referee in the crowd. Naturally, Jimmy Hill was a qualified referee amongst everything else. <laughs> so he, he made himself known, put on a tracksuit and ran the line. Extraordinary. The, the business, Michael, of, of him uh, inventing three points for a win, how did that happen? Uh, I'm not quite sure that how that came into being, but I think I'm right in saying it was the Isthmian League, the uh, well, now it's the seventh division of English football. I think they trialled it for a couple of years and it proved successful, so it got adopted higher up the pyramid. But it was, you know, it was, I believe, an English thing that was gradually adopted by every other footballing nation. And, yeah, obviously one of those things we come to accept as normal now, but uh, there would be a few different league winners had we still been using... Two points for a win. That's very true. Dion, were you a big fan of Jimmy Hill? Well, um, I, I can't say. I think I was probably neutral on Jimmy Hill in many ways. But I do think he's one of those great uh, kind of restless figures in, in, of, in history that people that always get things done. And I think partly because of that, um, because, you know, it's almost like, the, you know, the thing that you know you, your parents would say to you when you're a kid, like nobody nobody likes a know-all. Like the fact that he could do everything, the fact that he was always thinking of different ways of things being done, meant that he also caused a bit of friction. Uh, and you know he was great on television. I was trying to I I was trying to remember. I I have a vague memory in from Ireland matches from Ireland in the European Championships or I think in the World Cup. Ireland fans singing. Are you watching Jimmy Hill? Um, and I wasn't sure. I knew he had done something to slight us. Um, and I wasn't sure what it was. And I was just looking it up today. And it turns out, I think he said that Ireland would be making up the numbers at, at Euro 88, um, which was uh, which is probably what most Irish people thought until they, they beat England too. But we, the Irish people don't like... The one thing... There are lots of things Irish people don't like English people to do, but one of them is to be condescending. Another is to claim uh, Irish people as English. But on this occasion, he just seemed to be a bit condescending. And that song, as Irish supporters tend to do, it kind of hung around for years. For years, people would be, you know, crowds would be singing, are you watching Jimmy Hill? And uh, I don't think people really knew why he should be watching, but we wanted him to watch and to pay attention. But he was uh, no, he was he was an extraordinary figure. Certainly was. He was he was also absolutely hated by Sunderland fans mm. for tremendous reasons. I mean, for those who are unaware, there was a great controversy in the nineteen seventy seven season when Hill was chairman of Coventry, and it was either them or Sunderland who were going to be going down. They're playing different teams on the final day, and Hill concocted a, a plan to delay the kickoff of Sunderland's game by ten minutes for quite spurious reasons relating to I think traffic outside. That meant that Coventry could find out Sunderland's result and then they wouldn't have to go for a win they eventually didn't need. Um, and eventually Coventry stayed up. And there's a great video from fully 30 years later where it's a Fulham against Sunderland game and, and uh, half-time there's a presentation and, and you know the, the PA is announcing all these great legends of the club. And there's just incredible video from the Sunderland end where the PA announcer saying... And it's the most incredible wall of booze you've ever heard. And um, there's also a separate video where, so this must have been a Coventry against Sunderland fan, and there's a massive statue of Jimmy Hill outside the Rico. And there's a, a, a slightly drunken Sunderland fan who just can't <laughs> stop abusing this statue. He walks past it, shouts some abuse at it, and walks off, and then just has to go back for some more. <laughs> 
actually gets led away and told to calm down by a policeman, which uh, I'm not I'm not sure whether it's an offence or not. Is it to shout abuse at a statue? But uh, but could could be topical. Could be topical. New in government the next re- months, regulations suggest that yeah. yeah, that fan would have been in a lot of trouble in the current climate. Um, anyway, <laughs> there you go, Jimmy Hill, a man who had his uh, yeah good points and possibly uh, later on perhaps one or two less positive, uh, but certainly shaped the modern game. And uh, on this day, finally led uh, English players out of their exploited state. Very good. All right. Well, now still to come on the Totally Show, we dial up James Horncastle for hot news from San Siro of Inter Juventus. But first, let's get some odds from Lee Price of Paddy Power. Oh, listeners, why do I keep falling for the hype? Maybe because I've got nothing else except my beloved odds, of course, to fill my day. But I've swallowed the big match build-up every single time this season. So hopefully, the Premier League can make up for it with some more exciting fixtures this week. Let's see what's next. Arsenal versus Newcastle and West Ham versus West Brom. Ah, no pressure Leicester versus Chelsea then. And that game will definitely be Brendan Rodgers' audition for the Stamford Bridge gig, in his head at least. Although, we at Paddy Power weirdly make Andrei Shevchenko the favourite to be the next Chelsea manager. God knows. Uh, Leicester are 2-1 to one to win that one. Chelsea are the 13-10 to 10 favourites. The Kanye derby sees West Ham favourites at 6-10. to 10, More weirdness. With West Brom priced at 9-2 to, to make it back-to-back wins. And that really would be weird. While the meeting of the goal machines sees Arsenal favourites, they're 4-11 to 11 to win. Newcastle priced at 7-1. to one. The 0-0 is 11-1. to one. See you soon, my darlings. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Fun doesn't stop with totally, listener, probably ever. Uh, Also out today, when you're done listening uh, to this, you can hear the Totally Football League show in which they'll be discussing Wayne Rooney, his first game as the official derby manager against Rotherham. How did that go? Uh, By Tuesday, there'll be another host of podcasts for you to enjoy, including the Totally Scottish Football Show and the Offside Rule WSL edition uh, featuring talk of uh, Chelsea against Man United, the reigning champions against the current league leaders. Michael, you went to that game. Yeah, it was an excellent game. I mean, a really big one in the WSL. First huge test for Manchester United in their surprise title bid. And they came off second best in the end with... uh, yeah, a couple of goals from Harder and then Kirby. But I just thought the way they went about it showed a level of ambition that suggests maybe in a year's time, you know, they'll be a, a real force in the WSL and, and have a better go at winning the league. They lost, but I think they came off. In fact, both teams came off it well. It was just a very high quality, very high tempo game. All right. More on that in the Offside Rule WSL edition. Also out on Tuesday, it's the Totally Football Show European edition with loads to discuss, including... The Derby of Italy, the Derby d'Italia. And James Horncastle joins us on the line now uh, with the final whistle having only just blown in that game in Milan. James, hello. Hello, James. How did it finish? Badly for Juventus uh, in that they lost 2-0 and should have lost by an even greater scoreline. Antonio Conte and Arturo Vidal coming back uh, to haunt their old club. That's the first time that Conte has ever got even a point against Juventus, no, his, his former side. Yeah, he was playing that up uh, at the end of the at the end of the game, saying that, you know, when he was coach of Arezzo in Serie B, uh, that was the, the time when Juventus were, were down in the second division after being relegated. Did he uh, mention but... the time that he was manager of Siena? <laughs> no. Or did he just get he, past that one? He, he didn't mention that one either. Uh, he did say uh, when he uh, was coach of Atalanta as well, took a beating and they right. were they were deserved beatings as well. Um, but tonight it was like there was only one team on the pitch um, and uh, a little bit similar to, to Friday's Rome derby in that one team turned up, the other one didn't. Um, but usually Juventus always show up in these big games. Yeah, this has been the difference between them and the pretenders to their title uh, in the last couple of years, you think of Maurizio Sarri's Napoli uh, and you know, more recently Conte's Inter, and they've always just about had the edge. But tonight um, they were, well, not just second best, they were they were well below uh, what you'd usually expect from a Juventus team in a, in a big game like the Debut d'Italia. 
Well, they've been very patchy, and uh, of course, Andrea Pirlo in his first season as a manager of any club. But they, the previous trip to San Siro saw them be the first, become the first team to to beat Milan with a whopping three one win. They also had that resounding victory over uh, Barcelona at the end of their uh, Champions League group stage as well. So, what what went wrong tonight, particularly? Well, no, I mean, you're right to point out that there have been some highs uh, on the on the Pirlo. Um, yeah. In the league, I would say they've played Pirlo ball, if you want to call it that, on a couple of occasions, executed it really well. But against poor sides like Sampdoria and Panama, the Milan game, you could again point to Davide Calabria, fullback being in midfield, um, and Chiesa being able to get at Teo Hernandez and expose some of his defensive frailties. Uh, I mean, I bring up that Milan game and, and, and the midfield because I think that was uh, the major the major difference uh, tonight. Uh, Michael and I collaborated on a on a piece for the Athletic earlier this week, and Michael kind of quite astutely observed that you know Pirlo just doesn't have a player of uh, Pirlo's profile on the on his team, uh, whereas uh, Conte does in in Brozovic, um, and Brozovic had a good game. I uh, was able to do things that Rodrigo Bentancur wasn't able to do in uh, in black and white, which was kind of switch the play really quickly and, and kind of um, Juventus then had to move across and they weren't able to get their timing right when they did that. But Vidal and particularly Barella, uh, Barella was exceptional tonight. Um, goal and assist, but so much more. Um, you know, you can see he was limping at some stage, you know, but he kept going. Um, he kept setting up chances uh, for his teammates when uh, they were in and around the penalty area, if you want to use that uh, cliche, and he didn't get the ball. He was he was angry at his teammates for it, um, and Inter were rampant, uh, really. Um, and I think Pirlo's efforts to kind of initially mirror uh, Conte's tactics and play a kind of three-five-two, and then go to a four-four-two, it just didn't really uh, didn't really work. They never got near Brozovic. They couldn't shut him down. Um, Chiesa was never in the game, uh, aside from a cross in the uh, in the first half, and I think one of the only shots that they had on target late in the game. He was unable to kind of uh, take on Ashley Young and beat him, and Ronaldo was completely anonymous. And I think uh, you know one of the principal issues with the ideas that that Pillar's trying to trying to get across is he wants that team to press, uh, regain the ball as soon as they. Uh, as soon as they lose it. But if you don't do it in a coordinated and collective way, you just get picked through so easily. And, and that's, and that's again, what happened tonight. Hilariously, uh, Antonio Conte was saying of Juventus, some teams go out and buy stars, we make them at Inter. Which, given the fact that he's, he responds to every defeat by asking for new players was, was, was interesting. But, but given the fact of just returning to this issue of, um, of Juve not having a Pirlo figure... We're in the middle of the January transfer window. Do you see them going out and buying a player of that role or indeed any other reinforcements? Well, I think uh, they're looking for another striker um, right now, someone to uh, to back up uh, Morata, who's been out injured. Morata again um, tonight. Uh, he made a, a cameo in, in the cup in, in midweek uh, when Juventus had to go to extra time to, to put out Genoa. Um, he's been excellent, um, and I think they've realised that um, they need someone else who can kind of take the load off. Um, so it's not midfield where they're looking at. Um, the only other kind of deal that they've done, but they haven't really done, is for another American player, Brian Reynolds um, of Dallas FC, who's a, a right-back who's been kind of compared with Alfonso Davies, and he's going to go to Benevento with the understanding that he might join Juventus. Um, next season, uh, so at the moment it's it's difficult to foresee uh, Juventus intervening in in uh, in a kind of really decisive way um, that would maybe turn the title race back towards them. I mean, they've still got a game in hand, but that game in hand, James, as you well know, is against Napoli, and Napoli have been in 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 very fine form. Uh, well, at least they were in fine form at the weekend, absolutely hammering Fiorentina six nil. Um, they meet in the Super Cup in midweek. Um, so I think this could be a really exacting uh, exacting week for Andrea Pirlo and Juventus. I think it's becoming harder and harder to see them winning the title this year. Um, and I don't think that's that's a knee-jerk reaction from last uh, from tonight. I think that's that's just a general feeling that's that's been percolating over the course of the last um, six months, uh, really. And uh, the Milan clubs look really on it. Um, so 
Um, I mean, you're talking about reinforcements. The one club that is reinforcing um, in January is Milan. With um, I think they'll make three signings by the beginning of, of this week. So, so yeah, I think the Scudetto will be moving to the city of Milan uh, come May. As it stands, Milan and Inter both on 40 points. Milan will be playing Monday night, though, against a struggling Cagliari. So we'll see if that moves them three points clear again. Juve down in fifth place, seven points off the top. James, you can tell us all about who those signings will be for Milan and how Napoli destroyed Fiorentina 6-0 and what happened to Palmer under their new manager and loads of other things too in our European edition of the Totally Football Show, which will be out on Tuesday. Look forward to speaking to you for that. For now, many, many thanks. Cheers, guys. James Horncastle. And that pretty much wraps it up for today's Totally Football Show. Dion, anything else you'd like to leave our listener with? Nothing, James. Just going to brush up on the rules of origin between goods between the UK and the EU, which is what I need to do now. Belatedly, yeah. Okay. Daniel? No, not even that exciting for me, I'm afraid. Just some winners and losers for Football 365 tomorrow? Yes, indeed. Or indeed today, as you know. Today, yes. Yeah, okay. And Michael, big plans? No, I have nothing to say, but I enjoyed the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, no, it's always a delight to have all of you on and especially to have your ears to put it all into, listener. Uh, We'll be back with all of those shows that I mentioned and then this one returns on Thursday. So have a great time until uh, you next join us from all of us here. It's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.